Trigger warning, today's episode is explicit in every way, covering subjects like substance abuse, domestic violence, and suicide. Please take caution while listening. Welcome back to Brazen Radio. My name is Nina, and this is Alex's Soul Story, Chapter 1. Before we jump in, I just want to preface a couple of things, like how this all started. My buddy and I were having a conversation. He said he would love to tell his story, and I thought, that's so dope, let's do it. So we did. I didn't realize what these conversations would open up for them. Now, I promise the story has an interesting ending, but it's not the super heavy one I thought it could have been. Come January, these conversations started in November. It's March. I'm well aware of how long it's taken me to get this out to you. But let's not waste any more time. This is merely chapter one. So strap in, friends, because the story starts now. That's one of the things that I'm, one of the takeaways that I got from rehab is that for me, and I, I know that a lot of people or, or professionals, right, psychologists and everything, don't say this. For me, there's only two emotions. And everything else is a feeling that comes from those two emotions and those emotions are love and fear. So since before I was even born, I was ready to live in the lane of fear. And because of the amount of violence that I live with, I always lived in that lane. So what I'm trying to do now is do that shift from the lane of fear to the lane of love. That's a big undertaking, bro. Um, so contextually, I feel like people need to kind of know more about you, like where you're from and, and all that jazz. So I know you said you're from Tijuana. Break yeah. that down for me. Give us a little bit of like a window into Alex's life, if you could. Well, born and raised in Tijuana. I could definitely say amazing childhood. I would never change it for anything. I had access to everything. At that time, when I was small, I was definitely the leader. All the kids used to follow me when, when I was young. Anything that I touched, I was very good at it. I remember the first thing was swimming, uh, school, uh, any type of sports. By the age of six or seven, I was doing piano recitals in like Tijuana City Hall uh, at six years old or seven. Pretty weird. And yeah. Yeah, very good, very good childhood. I learned a lot. I had a lot of role models, for sure, which I appreciate that a lot. Everything has either a, something good, but there's also the opposite, right? So I grew up with a lot of violence, a lot of violence. And from the time that my mom uh, was pregnant, she was heavily abused. My mom was lucky enough to have the support of her parents. And as soon as it started to happen, she flew from that situation. And that gave me the opportunity to live with, with my grandparents, aunts and uncles. It's, it definitely changed me having to live with so much violence. At one point, I had to have a bodyguard to protect me from my dad when I was 10, 11 years old. So the bodyguard used to take me to school, 
used to pick me up from school, used to be outside of my house because every time my dad saw my mom, shed show, like shed show, right? So my mom couldn't even take me to school or pick me up like a regular kid. But that definitely made me started to to even hate when I was a kid. I always had issues. I has, have always been like a very nervous kid. I used to bite my nails. I used to, I used to bite my toys. Even at an early age, I was able to go to psychologist or specialist. And every time that I drew my family, I always drew my dad without a head. And every time the psychologist showed me that, like those pictures, like what do you see? I still remember to this day saying, "I see my father there." So that definitely shaped me into the decisions that I took when I became, let's say, a teenager, when cocaine was introduced to me. And yeah, I mean, I definitely felt the love. It was just a different, a different type of love. Let's say it was a love that my dad experienced. So maybe he just passed it on to me, that type of... You need to fear somebody, right? And instead of having that role model to look after, all I felt when I saw him, when I was around him, was fear. Because that's the only thing that he showed. Fear in himself, right? Mm. So he just passed it on to me. Shit. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story that starts to, to make a little bit more sense. Uh, the story goes that my grandma didn't want to have my mom very old school right she even tried a couple of things to to have an abortion obviously didn't happen but I think my mom had always that resentment I mean it's not hard to to see it but I believe that my mom got with my dad just to go against my grandma and when that happens nothing good is gonna come out of it right I once asked my mom because my mom is a teacher and I called her out and I said, how can you teach about love when you don't know what is love, right? And obviously it was a long, long pause and the things that came out of her mouth were something yeah. that you just read in a book, right? Or something that you just get passed down, right? I'll tell you, I'll tell you something that nobody knows. I was such a nervous kid. Maybe I was... I don't know, maybe I was six, seven, max eight, old enough. And I had trouble going to the washroom to do number two. So I sometimes halted for days, sometimes I even pooped myself. It was such a desperation for my mom. And she lacked the proper tools that I don't know how many times it happened, but she used to grab the underwear that I pooped and smear it all over my face. Oh my God, uh, Alex. Yeah. I'm sorry. Here's the thing. There's no need to be sorry because what's the difference between what she did to me to what your mom did to you? It, well, yes, every parent has their, their, you their moments, I mean? it's, of course. It's, it's, it, it's, it, we're all in the same boat. It's just how you deal with it and the consequences of what happened just, I guess, shape you or, are the things that happen now, right? How you deal with them. 
Well, I don't know. I've always been a firm believer that when you're lucky enough, as negative as that sounds, when you're lucky enough to have parents who are fucking up a lot, then you will learn from their mistakes as well as your own. So that way, hopefully, I mean, that's if you do the work. When you have children, you're going to be able to break so many of those fucking cycles that will no longer pass down trauma and hostility and a lack of tools and resources to help your child. Because what I've realized as a kid, I look back, if I ever upset my parents, their reaction was not a disciplinary action. It was an action out of anger. And they didn't handle themselves appropriately because they had a knee jerk reaction with a small person. Can't tell you how many times my parents kicked my ass like I was an adult. <laughs> like, so I looked, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the same. Yeah. It's nobody's. No, nope, we're all in the same boat, right? There's no yeah. level of, oh, I'm more of a victim than you because it happened, right? I think everyone's story is their own thing. I, I don't really believe in victimhood. Because yeah. you either survive it or you don't. You either come out you or more you or you become less of you. And therefore, you're not surviving it. You're barely making it. So did you ever end up spending time with your dad when you were growing up? Like just him without your mom there or? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because they had like joint custody. So, okay. but it was the typical situation where, hey, I'm coming to pick you up and never showed up or just I don't remember a happy moment around him and let's say I had I don't know a hundred or two hundred of them I just remembered fear wow so your dad does your dad still evoke that feeling not really so I have a half, half sister when she got in contact with me I said okay maybe it's time to give my dad an opportunity right Maybe it's also going to go ahead and help me deal with everything that I have. But having a conversation with him, I said like, okay, so did my grandpa hit my grandma? He said no. And I told him like, so why did you hit my mom? And his answer was because she deserved it. So when, when those type of answers come, there's nothing to do, right? the type of interaction that I have with him when I when I know that he's getting kind of close I just make him think that I need something and he disappears that's terrible <laughs> it's yeah. funny but it's terrible yeah, yeah. <laughs> one sec I gotta add a piece of wood to my fire so I don't all right talking to you because it's minus nine today a few moments later fire's back in action all right Obviously, you have a pretty strained relationship with both parents and you had your aunts and uncles around. Would you say that you're closer to them than your actual oh, parents? 100%. I can tell my uncles or my aunts I love them, but I I don't tell my mom or my dad that. It's not a anger or nothing like that. It's just It just doesn't feel right to do it. You know what I mean? It mm -hmm. would feel like being a hypocrite. Because it just doesn't come from within. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It feels like obligation over genuine. That's one of the takeaways that I had from, from rehab. Number one is I don't know anything to anybody and nobody owes me anything. And the second take that I had that 
I don't know how to love my parents. And the third one is reprogramming my brain. So those were the three takes that I came out of rehab. Mm -hmm. That's a hard one to um, act on, though, I find. Like, we know that, but sometimes you have guilt that you somehow start carrying for other people's expectations and emotions. So I commend you for recognizing that you're okay with not. Um, but we've talked about rehab a couple of times, but we haven't actually talked about why rehab happened. Like, I don't know how comfortable you are where you want to jump in there. Cause I know you've had a couple of stages. So just kind of maybe where did it start and how did you know it was a problem? Well, I never knew it was a problem. That was a big problem, right? Because I needed it. I wanted it and I used it like to compensate that lack of courage when you say yeah. it do you mean cocaine yeah i mean okay. cocaine okay yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry so, keep going. <laughs> okay let me take you back so okay. i started the first time that i used cocaine i think i was 16 i remember it like it was yesterday i had a house to myself a couple of bodies came up my two of my best friends they took out a bag put some lines on the table, and I said, I want. There was absolutely no doubt, no questions like what, how, nothing. It was immediately, I want some. It made me feel like I wanted it to feel for a long time. Because at that point, my mom remarried. And my mom remarried a Vietnam War veteran. Not that, definitely not the human that, that you would like to spend time with. So again, that violence again was relived. And what cocaine did was automatically block me from that. Not that the violence couldn't affect me anymore. Right? And when I started to use more cocaine it definitely brought down the social wall and i started to hang out with a very certain clique a very a very niche right because not a lot of kids do cocaine at 16 right (laughs) so (laughs) it was like uh like a young family right we were maybe 15 20 16, 17-year-olds that we just had each other's back because we knew our secret. Nobody could knew because, man, doing coke at that time, it was like, what are you doing, right? You were a rebel if you smoked weed. Now, obviously, in Canada, it's more open, but those times in Tijuana, which is very, very like close-minded, poof, you were a rebel if you smoked weed. Imagine doing cocaine. <laughs> so hanging out with them gave me that gave me that courage then gave me that invincibility type of feeling right and then because if you mess with with one that we were but you also mess with the outsiders that wanted to be hanging out with us (laughs) and then you mess with the connections right because a couple of friends dads were like 
having the drug business, like a couple of friends that were federal agents. And at that time, one of my godfathers was police chief. So we had like, like connections that made us unstoppable <laughs> with fake power, with fake power because everything ends at the end. That's true. I, you know, I once, uh, I once dated a guy who dealt cocaine and, uh, I remember he had two suppliers. One was an Italian guy and the other one was a Jamaican. And one day I was working at the mall and I ran into the Jamaican and we were having a quick chat. He was asking about my boyfriend and at the time we had broken up and he goes, well, it's probably for the best. Cause you know, in our line of work, you always end up one of two ways, either dead or behind bars. Not even two months later, he got shot and killed by the other dealer that my boyfriend was buying from at the time. But what are the fucking yeah. odds that the two suppliers I know wind up exactly the way he predicted? Like it was it's a and wild world. It's 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 what it is. It's those consequences. And I could very easily could be in that. And the way I am, I see myself self more dead than in jail. Yeah. But I was lucky enough to have a, a a loving family that once they saw the route that I was going in, I remember one day, like staying out for two or three days and boop, waking up to a knock on the door and a plane ticket. You have two hours to pack your stuff. You're going out of town. And when I was 16, 17, they sent me away to live to another state. Did it help? It definitely helped because it separated me from obviously using cocaine because I couldn't use coke. I had too much respect and too much love for the uncle that I was living with at the time in a city called Querétaro, closer to Mexico City. So it was pretty far. <laughs> I couldn't definitely drive or, or nothing. It was not the age of smartphones or anything like that. So it was pure disconnect from everything right okay yeah I, I could see that exactly so i stayed there for like two years definitely no cocaine but drinking so there's always been something right although mm -hmm. alcohol might be something more acceptable it's not that i was drinking a lot it's the damage that two beers or ten right and what opens up in my mind what it does right so it's not definitely not oh but you don't drink a lot it's with two beers my thoughts go crazy right and those thoughts of revenge of vengeance of for that come alive when you say vengeance that really hits home for me so these things unlock some stuff that maybe you have buried what is it unlocking what do you believe that's tapping into where is that hostility coming from that awakens with like the introduction of alcohol with the amount of violence that i grew up with right so instead of well imagine when you're a kid trying your dad without a head right yeah. so it yeah. was it was from the moment that my mom was pregnant right in in one of the books that i mentioned unbroken brain it Man, that's that's like a Bible. If somebody has issues with addiction, you definitely need that book because every chapter is going to resonate. And in one of the chapters, it says how, depending on the environment that you're living, when your mom is pregnant, certain genes open and close to get used to 
the environment that you're gonna live outside right when you're born and my mom was abused when she was pregnant so obviously a lot of violence so my mind was being molded to protect me to that that's why I always been very impulse driven I want it now not later it also gave me that attitude of live fast the young for a lot of my teenage years I always thought I was gonna live up to 30 that was it okay and so you got you were sent away for two years but it's been probably over 10 since then yeah. right so things have happened and evolved I know you lived in our lovely country when it was still lovely, <laughs> less yeah, of a dictator. Is. I mean, dude, uh, <laughs> it is, but the government's really scary here. <laughs> what what, ma what makes it a lovely country is the people. You're right. And also the nature. It's not as deadly as yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No scorpions. You know, it's good, bro. <laughs> uh, yeah. You could sleep in the grass. You'd probably be okay. But, but you, you have bears. A bear you're gonna hear the bear you're not gonna hear the scorpion that's all i'm saying <laughs> you got better chance i don't know <laughs> you moved away did you end up moving back to tijuana and did you stay there and connect back with all your friends i came back after a year a year and a half or so probably i was like 18 something like that i got a job in san diego i behaved I got a girlfriend, everything was doing pretty good, but then something happened and then I needed to go to my familiar area or, you know what I mean? Like, so I started to hang out again with the same crowd. I started to do coke at that time. Well, people keep climbing the ladder, right? And have that narco culture, so even more power even more ego. So again, that necessary danger uh, was flowing down down my veins. And it happened again. They told me, boom, you're out. And they sent me away to another city to live. I stayed there for like two years. And I came back to Tijuana again, behaved for a year or two, and then involved with my friends again and then that's it they said okay you're off to to cancun and that's how i ended up in cancun i think 2000 2003 or 2004 i don't remember but i was 20 21 max so i stayed there i absolutely love cancun right because i thought i was i thought it was the shit from this kid from Tijuana with this power, these connections, everything, right? So I said, okay, this is it. I can finally forget about everything in my past and start new here. And then in 2005, Hurricane Wilma hit. <laughs> and, and there were no jobs. So I said, what am I going to do? And I went back to Tijuana. Man, that was, that's where stuff really got really really serious and can you elaborate I, on that i went back and at that time being on on and off from tijuana probably probably five or six years right and but that time i had friends that were like pretty high up 
in, in that ladder. And those kids that before were on the outside wanting to hang out with us, those kids were like, man, like pretty high up again. And I went back and I was like, what happened, right? Something that I could even recognize, the jump that everybody made. And because everybody knew me, everybody knew that I, I, I came in, I went out, I came in, I went out. And because my mom always recognized what could happen. So all my friends really had that appreciation for my mom. My mom was the one that if if somebody needs to stay here for two or three days or while things come down at their house, they can. So it was pretty common for my buddies to just hit me up. Hey, man, can I stay at your house today? For sure. So that appreciation for my mom from those buddies who end up being like this straight up like hit men were also really helped me out. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fuck it man okay yeah. all yeah, right yeah. so um just as a quick sidebar is there one family or multiple families involved in tijuana uh, i'm gonna say families because i mean uh, kind of starts uh, okay at that moment and uh, there was only one okay so yeah. you got back and all of your friends had climbed the ladder, the uh, car cartel corporate ladder, and yeah. they, they moved up into the world of danger, let's say. Did you think about joining them? I like I, I don't know how to ask that question because that's it's not like it's a club. <laughs> Here, okay, it kind of is, but I had it so good that I didn't need to join. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. everybody knew that you're just here for a couple of, maybe a couple of months, maybe a year, and then you're off again, right? So I was always hanging out with like different cliques and my roommates were like very deep into it, like like deep, deep. That's where I knew that although I loved the protection, I loved the power, I had a lot of fun. It's just something that I didn't want to do. I get it. It's a scary yeah. life choice. It's a really scary life to live in. <laughs> Man, like I had a roommate. So the way they re recruit you is when you're at your lowest point. And what they do is they make you think that you're all family, right? So you want to do anything that is asked of because it's your family and you want to you wanna let them down. So I had a roommate that... When he came back from work, he went to sleep. It was kind of normal to find him sleeping with his gun up against his head yeah. because she, he just have taken so many bodies, so many lives that they were coming after him. So he just couldn't deal with the, what was going inside his head. And you slept in the same house as that person. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. Yeah. Talk about keeping the fear state even without doing it by design. <laughs> and it was it it was around us. And yeah. and a story with, with him was I knew the way he went in. And an amazing person, an amazing person. So when I was in Tijuana, I stayed there for probably eight months, ten months. I went back to Cancun. I stayed in Cancun for a year and then I went to Canada. And nobody knew. I went to Canada, right? Mm -hmm. So when when I 
left Tijuana to live in Cancun, I was living this peaceful life. And when as, as soon as I left, shit hit the fan, like big time. Everybody, everybody was getting killed. Everybody, everybody was that I was close to. And I started to get a lot of phone calls. Like, hey, we're going to Cancun. Hey, man, shit or stuff. I'm, I'm going to Cancun. I'm going to Cancun. So I just didn't want to deal with that stuff because I knew by then I don't, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be, it's, it's not in me. I, I went to Canada. I started to call this friend, the one that I lived that, that, that I just mentioned and no answer, no answer. And I call him again and I call him again, no answer for like two weeks. So he finally picked up and I told him, Hey, I know what's going on. Nobody knows where I am. I'm in Canada. I want you to know that open door, you can come here. And he just went crazy, man. You stupid motherfucker. You know what's going to happen if I go. They're going to kill my family. Don't ever. He just fucking handed my ass to me in a way that I never saw him. But I knew it was possible for him to act that way, man. So we hang up. A couple of days later, I get the call from another buddy. Another call, he contacted me via email. He said, hey, he got killed. And I just remembered putting a hoodie that he gave me. And at that time in, in Vancouver, I was living in Robson and Burrard. I went out, remember had the hoodie. I walked and I was in a stoplight. And I was the first person in the stoplight to, ready to cross the street, right? And I just suddenly feel like somebody touches my my leg. I turn around and is this dude, short dude, like my friend, like like hairline, exactly like him and same skin color. And that guy starts to yell at me. How much fucking attention do you need? And I go like, <laughs> what? I I, I turned to the, to the stoplight because it was almost time to go. I turned back and he wasn't there. And uh, I took it as my friend saying goodbye to me and, and saying like, hey, thank you. Thank you for what you did. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Dude, I have goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I'm sorry he passed, but obviously. Uh, it's, part of, it's part of the business. I guess so. Fuck, that's that's really tough. So it's pretty serious, the connections and the people and the things you were involved in. So after you left Canada, did you go back to Tijuana or did you go to Cancun? No, straight to straight to Playa del Carmen. But by the time that I went to Canada, I knew that I needed to fix something with myself. I, I just knew it from like deep inside me, right? So also, one of the reasons that I went to Canada is because I also wanted to get away from everything, including my family. Although I always had their support, and I was never able to see it as a, as an action of love. I always saw it as, hey, you did this to me, then you owe me this. So I always had that type of entitlement 
right? I also need, I needed to break that apart. So when I went to Canada, one of the things that I wanted to accomplish was I need to remember the things that I cannot remember so I can face them and get over them. And I don't recommend doing that to anybody. So when I went to Playa, I was, without knowing it, I was just hanging on for dear life. I disconnected my physical body because my physical body was in Playa. I disconnected my heart and I disconnected my mind. My mind was in Vancouver still. My mind was in Canada. My heart, I have no idea where I left it. <laughs> it was it was like that. <laughs> it was like that. And my body was in Playa. So that's where the true disconnect happened. And that's where suicidal thoughts uh, came about. That's where a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. To, that was the first time that I used alcohol or drugs to feel that a hole. And when you feel a hole, it's knowing. So it's amounts of drugs, amounts of alcohol, till you just don't remember two or three days, right? So it was at that point, it, that was the first time that I realized, man, that it's, it's a never-ending type of abuse that I was doing at the moment. Fair to say you were in a pretty heavy depression. Mm, I mean, I know, it, I know it's a title, but like, yeah, yeah, it, you can you can say that. I didn't have direction. That's that's what I like to call it. I was living without direction. And so you entered this stage in Playa del Carmen, going yeah. heavy with drugs and everything. And did you have like a network of friends around you at the time? Did you have any support systems? Was your family aware of this? Uh, no, they, they were never aware because it was by this time, it has been already maybe four or five years that I like grew apart from them, right? Okay. So everything was very, very kept. I stopped communication. I stopped. I just didn't want them to know what was going on with me. But they were still very present because I couldn't find a way to kill myself without bringing shame to the family. And it was, man, unreal because I was such in a bad spot that days and days would go by. And the only thing that I would think of is how can I kill myself without bringing shame to the family? And one day, one of my buddies comes in, one of my neighbors says, hey, let's go to Akumal for snorkeling. Akumal, for people that don't know, it's one of the most beautiful spots to swim probably in the world. It's it's a bay, it's Akumal Bay, so it's protected by a reef. So there's it's a beautiful spot to swim, right? So we go, we go in. I always been a swimmer so i'm pretty comfortable in water especially in the ocean so boom we go swimming we we go deep because where that's where the reef is and i i clearly remember my friends going to the right and i'm going to the left so if you stick to the right you will never have any issues because there's no currents you're fully protected when you go to the left there's a small area 
where there's the entrance of the open water. So as soon as I felt the cold water, I knew it was, it, it was going to be trouble, right? And then <laughs> suddenly I just felt caught in this current. So I said, all right. At the moment, I didn't panic. But then I couldn't get out. That current was dragging me down. And then it happened. Oh, the current takes me underwater. I hear this voice saying, this is what you wanted. It's going to be an accident. An accident will not bring shame to the family. And I was like, man, boom, I go up. Couldn't see anything. Again, boom, current drags me down. And then I take a look at the bottom of the ocean, the most beautiful thing that I have ever seen to this day. So peaceful, so never-ending, so so calm. And then I hear this beautiful, beautiful, amazing voice say, stop struggling. Just stop struggling. Man, obviously fully conscious of what was happening, right? I go out for air. I could hear a thousand sounds at the same moment. I could hear the wind. I could hear the waves. I could hear the birds. I could hear cars I could hear I could hear chaos and again I went down this beautiful peaceful bottom of the ocean just waiting for me and again this voice saying let go stop struggling I was fighting temptation at that moment without realizing it so when I was up that's where power of the mind is just incredible I could hear another voice this voice was a, a male voice saying, this is why you work out. This is why you go to the gym. This is why you work out. Yeah, to a point where where it was always only with one hand and then I switch at the other hand, the other hand, right? And I just didn't want to go down anymore. And then I got out. Somebody jumped in. They went and got me. And when I came out, just like emotions all over the place. Just days and days and days of crying. And you can definitely say full depression, right, I guess. And I was lucky enough to to have one of my aunts take a vacation. Uh, like a weekend trip in a hotel that talked about angels. And she said, hey, let's go to eat. We went to eat. She saw me and she said, get your stuff. You're going back with me. And at that time, I just had the job for the first time at the gym. So obviously I was getting to meet a lot of people. I was getting what I thought everything in order. But I still remember closing the gym. And from the moment I closed the gym to my apartment, crying, crying, crying. So at that point, nothing, nothing could have, could have helped me. So I called my, my aunt and I said, okay, I'm ready. I got on a flight on a Monday. By Tuesday, I already seen a psychiatrist. I even saw a Christian pastor 
and I saw not the same day, but during that time, I also saw a spiritual healer. It was that that type of love that I have always received, but I was also always blinded by the by the curtain of of violence. Right. right. So so I was never able to truly appreciate the love that I was getting. I went okay. back to Tijuana, but obviously the different, different, different mindset, right? By then all my bodies were dead. Right. So there was not even a there was not even the thought of, hey, let's hang out. It was at that time it was all about me. And how am I gonna get back on track because it was at one point from my toes to my jaw I would get this I don't I don't know if panic attacks but like I was just right I just didn't understand what was happening and so I stayed in Tijuana for about six months just trying to rebuild myself were you using anything or seeing anyone at that time like did you continue to see the psychologist uh, yeah i was psychiatrist that was the first time that i went on antidepressant those type of things like downers right just to control my my anxiety or my attacks or my nervous breakdowns i guess they put you on prescriptions yeah oh fuck and do you still use them today and uh, no actually in rehab that was one of my my that was one of my like terms or for the contract no meds so i did it even without any meds yeah so uh, sorry correct me if i'm wrong but don't most of the meds that are supposed to help with uh depression have a suicidal impact usually when you're coming off them don't they don't they warn you that if you stop taking it you may have deeper suicidal ideologies and well depends it on how you take them right and and depends on on, on the person Right. I, I just knew that I could do it without them. Dope. And that was that was the first person ever, at least at that clinic, to do it without meds. That's man, I know the codependencies of people with antipsychotics and uppers and downers, and it's it's fucking intense. So yeah. I salute you for uh, feeling strong enough to overcome that as you well as you're entering your rehab program. But so at a certain point, so when when, and how come ayahuasca then? So you're in Tijuana, you're talking to these people, you're working through these programs. Was Peru even on your radar or was it brought to your attention and then you decided to follow through with it later? Mm, man, this is, this is pretty early. This is when nobody was talking about ayahuasca. I'm talking about maybe 2013, something like that 15 maybe i don't remember that well but it was pretty early and it started to to appear on my radar at a distance right and then there was an opportunity to go to peru and that's where i started to to really like go deep into it like proper retreat uh, what's the safety protocol stuff like that but I knew that it was something that I needed to do. Did 
when it started to pop up for you, like when, before you went and ayahuasca kind of hit your radar, were you still using drugs to deal? Like, and I don't mean the prescriptions. Oh, oh for sure. Okay. For sure. So the only time that I have not used drugs is during these eight months or something. Alcohol, I stopped alcohol in 2019, but it was a start, but I was still using weed. I was still using MDMA. I was still using coke, stuff like that. So truly, I have never been clean from the moment I was 16 to now, whether it's alcohol or drugs. Wow. Yeah. It's funny because I say wow, but at the same time, I smoke weed all the time. And I wonder how weird or different I would feel or be if I stopped. And I often toy with that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely am. I'm nobody to say like, hey, you should stop. Every, everybody, everybody needs to to understand if that is the route that they want to go. And I if agree. you don't, then that's okay, right? But for me, I love it. <laughs> I, I I truly love it. I love every single second of it. Of not not running away or not trying to hide or not try to use drugs for to deal with life, I guess. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. mm -hmm. I remember I had a talk once with this dude. They had expressed to me that one of the things they really appreciated was that in the moment of the height of an emotional moment, that all oh, when everything's just firing, like all your anger and your feelings and all of this, he's like, I, I hate fighting with people. But in that entry moment, that's where you come alive. That's where you feel very alive. So I can imagine being someone who spent well over 16 years numbing out. This must feel almost like a daily action for you to feel all of these things in one shot. I don't know if you've like leveled out since exiting rehab, but I can imagine that was probably a little overwhelming. That That's why I had the toughest week last week, because I just couldn't run away to smoke a joint to forget about it, or I couldn't do a line to get me that boost of saying, fuck you and your nose, right? <laughs> it, it was like, man, it was so alive, like so alive, so alive, but pretty intense. I started journaling. I don't know if I told you that, but the session that I did yesterday, journaling really, really helped me out in identifying what I'm fighting, right? Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty weird because I was, I was writing yesterday and I noticed that I was pointing fingers. So I started to write like this, pointing at myself. So I started okay. like, okay, so where are your responsibilities? Where are the consequences of not doing this? So I started to, to write and to write and to write. And then suddenly it says, so what am I fighting? I'm fighting my demon of the past. And this monster has a thousand heads. And those heads are the ones that I created. It could be my uncle. It could be my father. It could be my aunt. It could be John Doe. Like mm -hmm. those, those heads, I created them. So if that monster has a thousand heads, it's because of me. So I said, okay, so what's, what's my advantage? My advantage is that that monster cannot kill me. 
because if that monster kills me, that means that the monster also dies. So the monster can only hurt me. So what are my tools? My tools is that I have my discipline, that I have my morning routine, that I am sober, right? So those are my tools. What tools does the monster have? Well, the monster has a thousand heads as tools, right? But what is his weapon? His weapon is my past, right? So I said, okay, what's my weapon against this monster? And what came out is that my weapon is forgiveness. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. And I need to start by forgiving myself. And then after forgiving myself, then let's see who else is on the list. But I start. I have to start with myself, uh, and that's that's why my soul feels so energized because now I have a weapon. Well, you uh, have a and then you have a direction. You know what you're after. In our own minds, we put ourselves down, and then we don't realize that we're doing that. Like we're we're the bad guy. We're the bad guy to ourselves. And I think that that's exactly what you just described. And even though in logic or principle that that makes a lot of sense. I actually think that's a very hard place to land in here, like for you to realize for real, for real. Do you know, like you could hear a sentence or a quote and be like, that's beautiful, but not know the meaning of it. It's that speaking of quotes. Oh, Alex, this ties into that. And I almost wonder now if, if you found the thing that you're trying to kill. Well, I don't know. It's, I could say that I could that I want to kill self doubt, that but that's very very superficial, I guess. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to kill is that that demon or that monster that is my past. <laughs> Did okay. I want to. I'm sorry. I have so many ideas in my head, and one of the things yeah. is where I'm toggling between is I I'm thinking about that quote, what you just told me. And also the the first realization that you were called to ayahuasca. And so did ayahuasca offer you any insight on your path that has what you would believe is part of where you are today? And it gave me the most clear message of all. But at the same moment, extremely difficult to follow it, right? is because I prepared myself so much for ayahuasca for almost a year, meaning watching documentaries, uh, trying to read as much as I can, because I knew that one of the most important things that I needed to go in with was that everything that I saw was going to be real, because I created it. So there was no room for doubt and there was no room for insecurities, let's say, right? So it started with a three-month diet and stretching with meditation, with yoga. And once I got there, that's why I had like an amazing time. Not, Not like happy time, but the message was very clear. Because we went in there, me and my body, <laughs> big room, like 60 people. 
like right in the middle. That's a lot of people. <laughs> oh a, a lot, man. But one and everybody's super tense, right? Super tense. And and one of the things that I didn't know that was a very special ceremony because the maestro. That was his first ceremony, I think, in more than a year. They just came from all over a year, and it was a full moon. So everything was super tense, right? So one of the things that, like, made everything super relaxed <laughs> was that. So the maestro was giving instructions, and one of the things he said was, please be as quiet as possible for as long as you can because... Your your senses are gonna be multiplied by a quadrillion. I don't know if that's a number, but it sounds, it sounds yeah, it big. Works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and and then one dude like raises his arm. <laughs> okay, so he says, now that you're talking about sounds, there's a fly here. Should I kill it? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody just started laughing <laughs> and that took that like it just it took that like sense away right it, everybody was like oh man oh man like you're worried about a fly <laughs> which we're just about to encounter the craziest thing that you can ever imagine <laughs> and And so, yeah, with that, that was a pretty cool moment. The maestro said, all right, first cup, boom, we go in. Yeah, everybody throws up. But then you start to see people go, like, down the hall, right? And I go, like, okay, 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 that, that, that's, I guess, that's happening, right? My buddy was next to me, and then I, there was another guy that had done ayahuasca 14 times so he could cry. So all the time that he did ayahuasca, bolts out crying. Imagine the amount of guilt that that dude had. 14 times just yep. to cry. Just to cry. Wow. And, and then, okay, I start to feel the tingling, like, okay, this is happening. <laughs> pretty cool throwing up a little bit more i started pretty to see cool <laughs> yeah i start to see flashes and then but doing okay and then my body next to me like thank you <laughs> this is what I, this is what i came for <laughs> like ah like <laughs> and i just remember these two helpers coming in and just picking him up and okay <laughs> outside he was the first one to <laughs> be taken outside <laughs> and i'm talking about i don't know 10 15 minutes and everybody was still like, like on the first stages my body was like gone falls deep into like i don't know which dimension and then i don't know maybe like an hour maestro says all right round two boom drink it as soon as i went back to my mat i said fuck <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, okay, puking, like, there's no tomorrow, started partying, like, there's no tomorrow, <laughs> like, like, so imagine, I don't know if you call it coordination or lack of coordination to at the same time puke 
and at the same time fart. Right? It was just <laughs> uncontrollable. I just couldn't control anything in my body. So, so I was like on four, I don't know, like, yeah, on my knees all and fours, my hands. Yeah, all yeah. fours, yeah. Throwing up and, and farting. And the sounds were like just so intense, so intense, so intense. And I said, I, I don't want any part of this fuck this and i just remember saying i don't even care if i shed my pants i just don't want to be here anymore and i started to to grab my blanket and i still remember as soon as, as soon as i was going down 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 which felt like an eternity the sounds were like taking me or getting closer to what i can describe hell the screams and the suffering, what I was hearing was real, real suffering, real pain. And then I said, all right, I'm here. And a voice just came over and said, get up and get out of here. And man, <laughs> I don't remember how much time it took me, how long it took me. <laughs> I got up, couldn't see anything. Couldn't even remember how to walk. So I just remember like grabbing up to the rails, other people walking, singing, like total distortion. The humans with big heads, big eyes, and just saying, okay, I know you're there. Digest it. Boom, back burner. Onto the onto the next step. Right? So I don't even remember how I got to the washroom. I don't even remember how long it took me to get there. I took a, a dump, biggest dump of my life, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> man, man, my respects to the person that cleans the washrooms. Oh, yeah, fair and enough. So, boom, boom. There was no half-assing anything. Anything from what you start, you're going to finish. Mm -hmm. And got out of the washroom, got out of the space. We were in a big, like, ranch, so there were different sections. And then the first bench that I saw, I sat down, look at the sky. I was like, man, just traveling through dimensions. And then suddenly I hear just somebody speaking something couldn't even distinguish what it was definitely not spanish of course right or english it was just a made-up language and i turned around it was my body like i said no this is too much for me so i just i think i took two steps and just threw myself in the ground <laughs> right so i'm good here nobody bothered me right <laughs> and i was just ready to stay there but it got really cold <laughs> <laughs> so we were like minus five, right? <laughs> Up in the mountains. So I said, like, man, I'm I'm good here, but I'm cold. And then I went to a fire pit. And there were some people there. There was like another maestro there just making sure that everybody was alright. And I saw a lot of people with blankets. So I turned to the to the maestro that was in the fire pit and I said, Can you bring me a blanket? And he just looked at me and said nothing. 
So I said, all right, so maybe he couldn't understand me or something. So I turned to to the side and there were a bunch of blankets there. So I, to be honest, I didn't even need the blanket, right? It was just, it was another message of saying, hey, all the tools that you need are here. You just have to look for them. It started to get really cold, right? Because it was I was sitting in cement. So I said, all right, the tools are here. So I'm getting cold. I'm going to go get a rock, something to put there, and then I'll sit on top of that rock. So I see like this nice, beautiful rock to sit in like perfectly. So I go get it. I like try to pick it up. <laughs> Super light because it's a piece of foam. <laughs> <laughs> right? like, I couldn't even distinguish what it was, right? So I go, I put it there, I sit at the phone, and then by the direct, by the reaction of the maestro, I realized that it was his phone that he used to sit to take care of the people. And once he realized that I did that, then he he opened up to me. Then he said, okay, see, everything is here. Now, now you can go ahead and and and, and rely on me, I guess. And then I just sit there. I just stayed there, the fire. Just soaking everything in. I saw people that man, to be honest, they were so close to the fire that if a fire lock it went on top of them, they could have easily caught fire and they wouldn't even noticed there were people just so out of it out of it you could probably see like schizophrenic people having uh, attacks just the body moving in ways that you cannot even do it because you're conscious of it right the nervous system just totally totally out of control and then I see these two guys coming in with a big guy in the middle, and my friend, my buddy was just going nuts, nuts. He was trying to jump into the fire and everything. My buddy really had a bad time because he was hearing a lot of voices, and the voices were telling him, you're a piece of shit, you're not worth anything, you did this, you did that. So although, and, and this is the tricky part, right, about at least the ayahuasca experiences that although later on or the next day, he knew the voices that he were he was hearing were not there because the people were not there, he couldn't shake them off. It just stuck with him. Yeah. To, like to today? Probably because if I mentioned something about ayahuasca or something, so I, I also did the tote recently and I told him, uh, nah, nah, I'm good. <laughs> so maybe you can confirm this for me. I've uh, I've always un understood ayahuasca. I mean, let's not. I, I know some people like to theorize that I think it's the grandmother or the mother. Yeah, right. Grandmother. Most people say that you have to like kind of go through your life and all these things. But everyone has a different experience. What did you see or hear from anything other than the voice that would tell you to take care of yourself? The survival voice. No. Okay. Nothing, nothing, nothing. No entities. No, nothing. The only, let's say, visual things 
when I was outside, when I was looking at the stars, just seeing myself through dimensions, just mm -hmm. going through the sky uh, to an infinite end, mm -hmm. right? But I also didn't go that far because that's when I just went to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after you got yeah. back from Peru and ayahuasca, was that it? Were you... You were good. You weren't using, or you went back to using. No, I, of course I was using. I was still using, uh, smoking weed, doing MDMA. Uh, so was the only lesson that life basically starts and stops at the tip of your nose yep. from ayahuasca. Okay, and then that was probably when? What year? Uh, two thousand seventeen. Okay, so then what got you? to like how bad first of all how bad would you say your using was like was it under control or were you using a lot i was using every day okay so that's with that said it's it that really doesn't matter the amount it's how regular you mm -hmm. use it because yeah. at the end you're not letting your brain detox right so that was 2017 2000 and 18 in 2019 i had a job and i was doing really good really good and not out of nowhere but i didn't expect it they fired me totally my fault why because i didn't adapt i went in with this character like i'm above everybody like mm. i'm better than you they just didn't didn't go with it totally understandable but it really hurt me, mm -hmm. right? So one of the things that, that I knew from my father was that he always had pretty good jobs, but because of his character, uh, he always lost them. So when I lost that job, I said, okay, one of the things that I never want to do was be like my father. So I made a promise with God and I said, all right, I'm going to stop drinking, but please help me to find a good job. And then I stopped drinking and I found this amazing job working in this hotel, top of the line hotel, which is called Secret Sakumal, which like air. So every time that I saw that beach was like, oh man, thanks. Right. Deep reminder. But yeah, but this is where this is where it gets tricky, right? Because I say, okay, so I always had the idea to stop using drugs or alcohol, but I was never able to do it, right? So I said, all right, I'm going to trick my brain. I'm going to stop drinking. And then when I'm one year in, then I'm going to stop doing coke. And then when I'm another year in, I'm going to stop doing weed or MDMA. So it was going to be something step by step, right? So it wasn't like a big shock. When I stopped drinking, my brain said, oh, really? <laughs> and my addiction to cocaine poof, went through the roof, through the roof. And then I got a girlfriend that was also like, she really liked the drugs. So even more of a push, right? So it was like at the point that I had two ounces of Coke in my closet just for fun. 
that 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 heavy and obviously made bad decisions and one bad decision takes you to another bad decision and eventually i lost that job i quit basically so so to give you a little bit of a time frame so i got that job in 2019 so from 2019 to February of 2020, I was heavy on coke. And I said, man, I need to stop this because it's not, it's not good. So I stopped on February of 2020 to stop do coke. And then on March, everything closed down because of the pandemic. So from February 2020 to August 2021, I didn't do coke. Yep, I was doing pretty good and I wasn't drinking. I was just smoking weed and once in a while doing MDMA. But in August of 2021, when I quit my job, it really hit me because he said, okay, here we go again. I'm repeating the same pattern. And to punish myself, I went back and started using coke after almost a year and a half of not doing it. You have one of the most powerful minds I think I've ever had the pleasure of of sitting with. It's, because it works for you or against you, but it's extremely powerful and disciplined either way. And I'm no. I'm just in awe in a way, like as if it would do that to you after that much success. Yep, and and that's why it's like once I get it, once I learn how to navigate it, I know the potential that's around the corner. Mm -hmm. I know there's going to be a point where I can manifest anything that I want at that moment that I wanted. I like that. I like that. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So that was August of 2021. And then. Yep. And Ooh. then I was using again. August, it was pretty bad. Let's say, how can I say it? Not only was the use of coke that was messing with me, it was also the amount of self-damage that I was doing to myself emotionally and mentally for repeating the pattern. Right. Of not being able to, to handle the situation, right? Or stick with it or do better decisions, let's say. Mm -hmm. and, and this was probably August, September, probably by October. And... Man, if you took a look at my life during that time, everybody used to call me up. Hey, privileged life, because I checked all the all the boxes. I used to live in a three-story house, had a clubhouse, tennis courts. Like I used to read a lot. I used to meditate. My diet was on point. I was doing breathing exercises, but again, I was doing coke every day. And I was punishing myself for not making good decisions. So it was a clash. The clash of titans, I guess. And then it was pretty weird. Because in those meditations, the voice appeared again. And the voice said, it's time for you to go. And it was so clear that I believed it. And then 
I grabbed the phone, I did a little bit of research, and now I know how to kill myself without suffering. I know, I know. You're thinking, you motherfucker. Yeah. Well, guys, it's taken me months to work on this and how to piece it together in a way that makes sense while simultaneously making sure things didn't go in a direction I really didn't want to see them go for a friend of mine. So that being said, we'll see you next week. Now, go be motherfucking sunshine. I love you. <laughs>